Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program and you're on 3CR 855 on the AM dial, 12 noon, Saturday. And we're here, the Dogs, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, every Saturday to defend and to promote public education. And that is education which is publicly funded and it is the only one we believe that should be publicly funded because it is the only one that is publicly accessible to all children. It should be public in purpose and outcome and it should also be publicly owned and controlled and probably publicly built. We did used to have a public works department, you might remember, that used to build our schools and um, we got a pretty good deal from the public works department but not anymore. Uh, everything is now privatised so that uh, the plutocrats of the world can make a quick buck at taxpayers' expense. Now, we have a website at www.adogs.info and uh, you can there see our press release for the week. We're up to press release 593 and this is it for this week. The University Entry for Sale. The strange case of Scots College boys bypassing the HSC in New South Wales. When the market takes over in educational services, Australia is plummeted back into the bad old days of the 18th century, even before a meritocracy. Remember the bad old days when you had to have money and land and be a member of the aristocracy before you could even think about university? Forget about education for all, or even education for the academically able. In the marketplace, all that matters is the parental bank balance and cold hard cash. This became obvious in Sydney last week after it was revealed that Scots College boys bypassed the HSC and the ATAR score that they had to get to get into the Sydney University and instead they studied a 17-week diploma to gain access to the University of Sydney. And as you'll find out a bit later, this, this actual diploma was run by the University of Sydney for a cost, of course, because the University of Sydney, uh, with its current Vice-Chancellor, is in entrepreneurial market mode. Now, boys from the elite college are the only school students in the state to date, to benefit from the pilot of the Diploma of Tertiary Preparation. That's what it's called, the Diploma of Tertiary Preparation. 
in the 19th century it was called the matriculation, but that was done away with and you just had your leaving certificate or your HSC uh, in the uh, 1960s. Now, this diploma of tertiary preparation is aimed at teenagers with predictive tertiary admission ranks of between 55 and 70%. In other words, it's for the children that normally are just not clever enough to get into university. Unless, of course, they go to the right school. Eight Scots students took a 17-week intensive course for the diploma last year in 2014. Six of these eight students were offered places in selected degrees at the university. We're not told what degrees they were. Four enrolled and one deferred, probably to go and uh, overseas to do the grand... Uh, what was it that the aristocrats used to do, the grand journey in the Europe? The grand tour, I the think The grand it was. tour, yes. Yes, yes. Possibly with their own special tutor. From the University of Sydney, I would think. Anyway, that's that's uh, just surmise. Um, so this um, uh, Sydney Learning, it's called, this special diploma, has got another boy, 11 boys from Scots enrolled. And it's a wholly owned subsidiary of Sydney University that devised the diploma course. Now the TAFE, the TAFE people offer a tertiary preparation course for mature age students for $700. Sydney Learning charges $12,000 for its diploma, which typically is aimed at mature age students. It has not disclosed how much it is charging Scots, which is absorbing the cost as part of its school fees. And those fees are up to 33098 for tuition only. Once you get into the extras, I suppose you're up to 50000 for all those lovely trips they do overseas and so on. And another 24121 for borders. Now, the trial was only at Scots, but it had been envisaged that the diploma was going to be made available to other schools. Dogs are amused. Does this mean that Scots, with resources fit for the plutocracy, I mean, they're better at Scots than they are even at Sydney University, are they really just an ordinary school and have lost their nerve? Because they cannot guarantee excellence. You know that thing called excellence they keep talking about? University entry and further business networks to middle-of-the-road students whose parents pay big money and expect value for their dollar. Are they worried about legal actions for failure to honour an education contract? And does this mean that the University of Sydney has embraced the market and thrown standards to the winds. The principal of Scots, a Mr Ian Lambert, rejects the notion that it was an exclusive deal for an elite school. He and the university's academic board agree 
that the ATAR admissions ranking system has worked well for the top 20% of students, but for the middle ranking students who can be excluded from universities, even when they might be bright enough to succeed, it is not. It is another story. So there you have it. The, the students at Scots who don't fit into the upper 20% are able to buy their way into university. Now, this was possible in the 1930s, and it's back to the 1930s, isn't it? Well, the meritocrats in New South Wales, because there's a very strong meritocratic tradition at Sydney University. I know this because I was there on merit as, um, as a student. Certainly not because my parents were wealthy. So the meritocrats in New South Wales, if not the Democrats, have fought back. There is concern about, amongst the University of Sydney staff. They were worried about preserving equitable access to degree courses and it's led its academic board to shut down the alternative pathway for school-age students. On March 25th, the board resolved that any diploma applicants for its degree courses who were younger than 21 would still need to have the HSC or equivalent qualification. And it's the HSC, which gives you entry. The ATAR score uh, gives you uh, the possibility of entrance into the tertiary sector in New South Wales. And the State Education Minister, Adrian Piccoli, who is a member of the Country Party, by the way, he's not happy about it. He's declared that no school student should get an unfair advantage after it was revealed that Scots College boys bypassed the HSC and had studied the 17-week the, the, um, diploma to gain access to the University of Sydney. Access to universities should be fair and equitable. Mr Piccoli told Fairfax Media. Any scheme that gives some students an unfair advantage is unacceptable and I will be discussing this with the federal government which is responsible for universities. Well, what else did Mr Piccoli, Christopher Pine for that matter, and any of our political masters expect? We won't go into what Mr Foley, who's the Labor Party person, said. He just was very concerned about a thing called standards, actually. But what else do any of them expect? First of all, they failed to make the tax system equitable, with the wealthy refusing to pay taxes for the education of the poor. Then they shortchanged and privatised public tertiary, secondary and primary sector uh, and demand that its administrators become entrepreneurial. Then they divert public money from the public into the private education sector. And then they wonder why Australia has fallen behind the rest of the world in the education stakes. Soon they'll wonder why it is that all of the um, cash cows, the the international students that are wandering the streets of Melbourne and Sydney, why their numbers are depleted. Because what they're getting is not worth the money. The only way forward for Australia and Australian children 
because we're talking here about children, we're talking about the future generation, is to provide adequate public taxpayer funding for public education at all levels and leave the private sector where it belongs, in the dog-eat-dog marketplace. So uh, that is the uh, press release 593 for this week and it will go up on our website at www.adogs.info. Now, for most of the rest of this program, we'd like to talk about the TAFE sector because it is the TAFE sector, even more than the university sector and the secondary sector, that has been privatised, holus bolus, in the last uh, few years. And the, um, the results are there for all to see. The Australian Education Union has uh, done research on this. They have got people to do research. And um, the University of Sydney Business School has done a works in the Workplace Research Centre has produced a report entitled The Capture of Public Wealth by the For-Profit Vet Sector. And it is uh, on the Education Union website and it is well worth a read for those who are concerned about what is happening to the TAFE sector in Australia. And this is what they say. In 2012, the Commonwealth and all states and territories agreed upon a new market-driven funding model for vocational education intended to promote opportunities for for for-profit registered training organisations. They're called RTOs, at the expense of the public TAFE institutes. The centrepiece of this reform was a national training entitlement or a minimum guarantee that all working-age individuals could access subsidised training up to Certificate 3 level at a vocational education provider of their choice, provided they satisfied various eligibility criteria that vary among the states and territories. Now, this demand-driven funding model was has been the primary means of opening up contestable funding to for-profit training providers and forcing public TAFEs to compete in a competitive market. And of course, this is what is happening at the secondary and primary sector as well in Australia, not to mention the tertiary sector. Now, this followed the earlier implementation of the model in Victoria. Uh, We were leading the field here in the deformation of our TAFEs in 2009 with the rollout across other states currently in motion. The report shows that the reforms have led to a sharp reduction in government spending per hour of vet delivery and a massive transfer of wealth from taxpayers to the owners of for-profit training providers. For example, government funding of the for-profit vet sector in Victoria grew at an annual pace of 42% between 2008 and 2013, rising from 137.6 million to 799.2 million. Now this is, this is our money, uh, listeners. This is our taxpayers' money. And it's going out into 
profit-making institutions. This is not what we pay taxes for. We're not there to make profits for people who don't make profits normally. This is just, um, I think, money for, for, for butter or something, isn't it? Money for jam. Uh, and it's really quite quite frightening when you look at the figures. Based on the results of the publicly listed for-profit providers, the for-profit vet sector appears to sustain profit margins of around 30%. This indicates that every dollar of public subsidy paid results in 30 cents of profit for distribution to the company's shareholders. It's estimated that in Victoria in 2013, about $230 million in profits was generated across the for-profit vet sector. And that's, that's taxpayer funds. Based on over $799 million worth of training subsidies. Just three companies are estimated to have extracted at least $18.3 million in profits from Victorian taxpayers in 2013. This rate of return well exceeds the benchmark norms set by comparable industries, such as childcare and transport. Uh, it's quite, quite extraordinary. The analysis in this report rejects the notion that the vocational training sector, under demand-driven entitlement funding, has made progress in the transparency and quality of training delivery. Because the complete marketisation of VET has come at great cost to taxpayers without achieving the objectives of the reforms. So uh, it's not very good uh, news that we can give here. The research strongly endorses the case for publicly funding vocational education and calls for an evaluation not only of the current architecture in the vocational education system, but also of the principles that are underpinning its growth. The key design features of the current system, 100% contestable funding and risk-based re regulation, will fail and is failing to deliver the assumed price and quality benefits of a competitive market because of two factors. One, education is an experience good. No amount of information for regulators or students can overcome the fact that its quality can only be evaluated after its consumption. And two, the sector is characterised by imperfect competition between profit-seeking and increasingly larger providers whose business models have scant regard for educational standards. Now, there have been on the ABC um, programmes which have indicated that these uh, for-profit providers are indulging in scams and that there are large numbers of students who have incurred debts but have not uh, come out of these courses uh, with anything like um, abilities or training. But Robert has got quite a bit to say on all of this, so I'll hand over to him. Thank you very much, Jane. You're listening to The Dog's Program here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial and indeed podcast on the website. Dogs, the defence of government schools. Now, when we talk about schools, we're going to talk about TAFEs as well because TAFEs are a vital 
um, education sector in the Australian economy, in the Australian life, uh, because it's where you learn how to do stuff to, to make the country go round. Um, there's a lot of information coming out about TAFE lately because the whole thing is, in fact, a shambolic mess. It's a demonstrable shambolic mess. It's a demonstrably, functionally corrupt shambolic mess. I assure you, Robert, even if you pay, you still can't get what you want. I'm an adult learner. I'm prepared to pay the CAE just to do a course in German. And the uh, the teacher, who is excellent, is worn out. She's just tired and, and she's not going to be continuing. And why should she? Because she's paid a pittance. And, um, and they can't offer me the any more courses because uh, there aren't enough students to take them because uh, there aren't the teachers to teach them. It, it is. It's shambolic. And the, 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 the TAFEs, which used to have such a wonderful range of subjects and which had such wonderful teachers, have just had their funds cut. Yep, they're gone. And I'll be talking in detail about several courses, which are vital courses, which have been cut from various tapes around Victoria later in the program. But before I want to talk about that, I think it's worth discussing is TAFE's in, TAFE's in dire problems. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole process is a mess. And I'm sure politicians and various other experts will go, well, let's, let's go about the process of fixing it. Um, I think my perspective is very simple. The way it's been done at the moment is impossible to fix it. There are serious structural problems with the way Victoria at the moment, and indeed many places in Australia, are dealing with this whole process of how do you get taxpayers' money, taxpayers' money, into an education system where the purpose of it, as as, as the report you just highlight says, is is, is an experience benefit. It, it's an experience commodity. It's, it's generating a plumber, a writer, uh, an electrician, um, a hairdresser. It, it's generating the skills um, that are the, the non-university skills that actually make this country go around. And my serious opinion is, and I'll explain why I have this opinion, is it's not fixable. What you have to do is very simple. You have to take taxpayers' money. You have to put it in the hands of of a minister who is accountable and that minister administers those funds on our behalf to educate the people of Victoria. He doesn't subcontract it out or sub-subcontract it out or do anything like that. He just spends the money. If he spends it well, then he gets re-elected. If he doesn't spend it well, then he doesn't get re-elected. If she doesn't spend it well, she can get kicked out. If she does spend it well, then she can stay in office. It's just very simple because education at its core, certainly in the TAFE sector, has to be above all else, accountable. And after it's deemed to be accountable, it has to be effectively spent. And if it's been accountably spent and effectively spent, then you look at questions of efficiency. Is it being efficiently used? Is there doubling up? Are there too many courses in Ballarat for plumbing? Well, let's move one of those to Bendigo. Those sorts of things need to be looked at in that order. Now, currently at the moment, the way money is being spent in Australia is supposed to be efficient because the marketplace is supposed to be an efficient mechanism for the distrib- for the distribution of, of public funds. You are it's joking, supposed to be. At the moment, it is completely, almost completely, 
unaccountable. The money just goes and arrangements of commercial inconfidence, or if it's a religious organisation, um, religious inconfidence. It's not at all accountable. Once the money goes, it goes. Once, once it goes into the free market, you can't get it out again. It's not at all accountable. Robert, this actually goes back to the GATS in 1994, which was signed by Mr... Um Mr Keating and others, we're being told again and again on the ABC this day, these days about how wonderful Keating and Hawke were because they reformed our, um, our system, our, our economic system. They, didn't, they deformed it and they put us into the uh, marketplace of the world and now our education system, which really did do a good job, is just up for grabs for profiteers around the world. This is, this is the basic problem. And the TAFE sector, which is so essential, as you say, um, is starting to show us just what this means for our nation's children and our nation's future. Any nation that really wants to have an economic future doesn't do this sort of thing. You don't find it in, in China. You don't find it in the Scandinavian countries. It's, it's madness. It's... Um, and now they are starting to talk about whether or not we actually are a sovereign country, whether we have our own governments or whether we are just the plaything of big multinationals that are roaming around the world with their money wanting to make profits at everybody else's expense. That, that's what this is really about and it's very scary. It's playing out in a little microcosm, not to the benefit of the children and people who need training in Victoria. As I was saying before, the whole process of TAFE is demonstrably unaccountable. The other thing that's now coming out, and it's coming out in unarguable ways, is that not just is it unaccountable, it's not at all effective. The kids are coming out. The people are coming out with degrees that don't mean anything because they haven't been trained properly. It is an ineffective system. It is an unaccountable system. It is an ineffective system. And the one saving grace I'm sure the marketeers will tell us is that, well, at least it's efficient. But I can tell you this, Jean. I can tell, you, I can tell our listeners too. If you are a private training provider, you are interested in one thing and one thing only. Making money. Making money. And so, well... If you can tie in well, the if you can tie it. in the idea of making money with providing effective and accountable education, then I suppose that's all right. But that's exactly what has not happened because they have not been held to account, and they're not in fact de- delivering effective training. Well, they're and not even you... making money, Robert. They're leeching it out of our treasuries, the taxpayers' money out of the treasuries by filling in forms and saying that they are doing certain things, but there is no inspection, there's no accountability, there's no nothing in place. There's no regulation in place to actually assess whether or not they're producing what they say they're doing. I will put it to you that a private training provider is interested in being unaccountable and is uninterested in being at all effective because that's not indeed what they're all about. And the evidence is now, is now overwhelming as to this is what's happened. In fact, it's a bit of a scandal. In fact, the AEU Victoria, the the union down here that represents TAFE teachers, has actually now welcomed a state Labor government's launch of an urgent review into vocational education and training because that's exactly what it needs. Meredith Pearce, the president of the AEU, has said in a press release released on the 20th of February that the continued rorting in the system by private providers highlights the fact that the market model is not working and has failed the public TAFE system. I would say it's not, not just that it's not working, that it was never going to work and it must be abandoned completely. Now, the Minister for Training and Skills, Steve Herbert, 
said just recently that these abuses include qualifications being issued to students who have no demonstrable skills. Providers claiming government funding for non-existing training delivery and poor oversight of third-party delivery training. Now, what this means, Jean, is that if there is a course that qualifies you at an old-fashioned state-run TAFE that takes you a year to do, a private provider will offer that same course for as, as, as a six-week intensive course and get the same amount of money. And the person pops out at the end of six weeks. The private provider doesn't care if they're qualified or not because they've already got their money. It's a done, dusted, sealed deal. They've walked away with the money. They're not interested in whether you can learn in six weeks what would normally be viewed to take one year to to, to generate the skills that are appropriate. Now, the AEU in Victoria is calling for 30% of the $1.2 funding for the sector to be made available in what they call a contestable market, and now the 70% to be protected and dedicated to the public TAFE system. Here at Dogs, I go further. Um... This whole system of what's happened here in Victoria has a history, and it's what the Minister hasn't spoken about, it's what the AEU hasn't spoken about, it's what Four Corners just recently, when they did an expose on this, haven't spoken about. It's very, very simple. Between five and six years ago, there were a very large number of private training institutions in Victoria who were servicing exclusively, exclusively students from the overseas market. They were teaching not Australian kids. They were teaching kids from overseas. And the benefit to the students from overseas were that they would be much more likely to receive residency in Australia. Now, these popped up all over Victoria. They were everywhere. They were generating money from not the taxpayers. They were generating money from overseas parents, from people overseas who wanted to get their children trained here in Australia and have the benefit of having a visa at the end of it. The quality of the delivery of that training was very poorly regulated and there were a very large number of them that were pulling in a very large amount of money. Now, in one foul swoop, the federal minister said no. He said no. You cannot bring your child to Australia. You cannot send your child to Australia and get themselves a visa by teaching them how to be a chef or a hairdresser. You can't do that anymore. And all of those colleges, overnight were swept away because they no longer had a market. And so there's all these private training providers that are geared up to, 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 to produce the product of poor training. <laughs> like, that's what they did. They were all about efficiency. They didn't care about effectiveness, and they were certainly very pleased to be unaccountable. So when this marketplace of overseas students went away, all these private training providers went to the government and cried poor and said, can we start teaching Australian students? And that's what's happened. And as a result of that, now four or five years down the track, the whole thing is an absolute shambolic mess. Because the privatising of the VET has actually lowered quality across... Our education system's got worse. And as you were saying, that research shows that privatisation of vocational training and TAFEs has led to a drop in quality over the last five, five years of courses and delivered huge taxpayer-funded profits, just profits, to the private providers. Now, Pat Forward, the Federal Secretary of the AEU, said the research showed that restrictions needed to be placed on private providers to ensure that students and governments weren't being ripped off, because at the moment, that accountability does not exist. (coughs) 
Now, the privatisation training sector has actually, to this point, been a failure. Now, I'm not saying this. I'm Pat Ford saying this, although I absolutely agree with him, which has enriched low-quality for-profit providers at the expense of the taxpayers, that's you and me, and, of course, more importantly, the poor students who are generating these extraordinary debts because it costs the student the same amount of money to go to a profit-making institution as it does to go to an old-fashioned TAFE. And what's going to happen when all of these overseas students realise that whatever it is they're going to get is not going to get them um, permanent residency and is not, and what they come out with is not worth anything back in their own countries either? <laughs> I think the whole thing is, uh, yes, shambolic. Well, and... It- It proves something about the market. And there's something about what TAFE education is all about in the first place that's lost in this mix. Mm. And I'd like to get down to the very small, the micro level here, because there's a very interesting article written by Nicholas Branch um, in The Age of the 16th of March, where he says, in 2015, the TAFE year has begun, he says. Thousands of students are embarking on education and it has the potential to change their lives. He says, this isn't hyperbole. He's seen it regularly up close. While much of the focus on higher education is on universities, Nicholas believes that TAFE courses have a far greater impact on the lives of many Australians, younger and older. And all discussion about the future of higher education should have TAFEs front and centre in any debate. Now, when most people think of TAFEs, they think of apprenticeships and trade training. But Nicholas's experience um, are in very different areas. And it's an area that has been the forefront of cuts in recent years. Now, you might be interested in this, Jean, because I know you did this course. Because last year, Holmes Glen Institute of TAFE announced it was ending its professional writing and editing course. It was one of the longest-running vocational courses of its kind in Victoria. The year before, Box Hill Institute of TAFE made the same decision to cut its writing course. The year before that, it was the Chisholm Institute. So, Nicholas asks, so what? Who needs courses in professional writing? They're just an indulgence. Rubbish. Well, Nicholas says, no, they're not. No, they're not. For one thing, vocational education courses um, in professional writing provide many disenfranchised and marginalised people with a voice. Many of those who enrolled in professional writing courses at this level, both young and old, do not have funds or the confidence or the educational backgrounds to go straight into university. To even take the step to enrol in a professional writing course has been huge. For some, they are the first in their family to have even walked through the front gate of any tertiary institution, and for others, their previous institution involved nightly lockdowns and laundry duties. Some don't have a permanent home, and many scrape together the fare to get to the class. Dyslexia, ADD and Asperger's are not uncommon conditions among students doing professional writing. A great many have mental health issues, and that's probably what draws them to professional writing courses. After all, many of the most creative and artistic people in history had similar issues to this. In one class, they are shown how to tell stories. They are guided through the process of reaching into their mind, foraging through their experience and imagination, and translating them onto the page, whether it's in the form of a short story, a novel, a script, or a poem. They are taught about sentence construction and introduced to professional writers, editors, and publishers. More importantly, of, or most importantly of all, they slowly gain the confidence to reveal themselves and to realise that their story and their life is worthwhile. Indeed, it's precious. Professional writing courses give them a voice. 
a very powerful voice, particularly when it goes on to get published, as many of them do. Maybe it's the power of their voices that the others are frightened of. When these students graduate, they take the next step and enrol in degree courses, something that would never have dreamt of in a couple of years beforehand. Some find work in communications departments of major companies or within government. Some become editors for traditional and indeed online publications. Some have the confidence to self-publish and self-promote, becoming authorpreneurs, they're called. All are far more adept than they were at communicating their thoughts than they were before. The whole experience empowers them and changes their lives. As if that's not enough to argue for the future of a writing course at a TAFE, in addition they provide community and business with well-trained communication professionals, all of whom graduate have been achieved competency in a range of writing and editing subjects. Companies that bemoan the quality of their employees' grammar should hire those with professional writing credentials. Pedants who write to newspaper editors with corrections of that day's copy should recommend today that journalists be required to complete a professional writing course. Parents who complain about errant apostrophes and unstructured sentences in school newsletters should email a link to the professional writing course to, to, to the volunteer who's put that up on the newsletter that was responsible. If things are bad now, how bad will they be if the few remaining professional writing courses at this level in Victoria follow in the footsteps of those that have been recently killed off? These courses matter. They matter a great deal. Like the lives and voices of those who enrol, they are precious. Now, what Nicholas doesn't say, and which I will say, is you won't get private providers producing courses available because there's no money in it for them. If there's no money in it, then you just don't do it. TAFE, education, isn't about following the money. Education is about enriching and empowering us all. That's the whole point of it. It's not just for profit organisations who have no interest in courses like this. But I think that's just a very interesting thing. It's not necessarily about the money. It's about what education is and what education does. And that's actually quite, to my mind, a sad story. You're listening to The Dogs Programme here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. And after a little bit of music and a break, we'll come back and I think we'll discuss in depth exactly what's happening in terms of parental choice and the education marketplace, both in Victoria and New South Wales, because there's some very interesting movements. The upwardly mobile aspirational middle classes are now starting to vote with their feet back to the state school sector, and we'll provide more details of that after this break. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. Just 25 bucks each. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
This is the rough-throated uh, 3CR. And if you believe, as I do, in the policy of 3CR and its music programming, how about becoming a listener sponsor? Oh, commercial radio, such a dreary scene. Second hear about Memphis, someone's pimple cream. Wanna hear about Australia, not some pop star. Watch the radio square tuning, tuning 3CR. Support the station that's been supporting the Australian independent music scene for nearly 40 years. Call 9419 8377 and show your support for 3CR today. Yes, some lovely music and some lovely messages too. You're listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 and the AM dial and podcast. Dogs, we are here to defend public schools. Now the whole education marketplace thing which we've been talking about over the last or half an hour or so here on the Dogs Program, certainly it's destroyed the TAFE sector. Certainly the tertiary education sector is, is up in arms about the whole process. Certainly the students who don't necessarily want to be in debt for the rest of their lives for the, for the privilege of having an education which was provided free to Christopher Pine and Tony Abbott um, is, is certainly up in the air. But I want to talk about parents now. We often talk about sort of the choices and parents um, and the way the education marketplace works. Although, of course, here at the Dogs, we don't believe education should be in a marketplace. It should be one of those things. It should be one of those things in life, like police, where you can't have a sponsored police car picking you up, sponsored by some company, and you shouldn't have a sponsored school educating your child because it's one of those things that is in the public sphere and should be accountable and effective, as well as, indeed, efficient in the delivery of a public service. But in Victoria and also in New South Wales, there is this question. There's this question of what next, and it's a process of how parents currently in Australia choose a secondary school for their child once they've attended a primary school. Now, for many parents in Victoria, the last years of a child's primary school years are not just about grade 5 camp or grade 6 graduation. There is, in fact, this question, the great what next, as writes Kate Nancaro in The Age on March 23rd. She said, the question is, where do you send your first child when it comes to secondary school? Now, you'd pause at the school gate, she says, volunteer at the sausage sizzle or attend a trivia night, and it'd be with a soundtrack of questions and discussions. Do you go public, do you go private, local or distant, single sex or mixed, select entry, open door, accelerated learning, baccalaureate, weekend sport or not? All these questions are wandering round inside the minds of parents who are about to send their child to secondary school. Now in some countries, and in some demographics in Australia, choice is either nominal or non-existent, and parents automatically send their child to the nearest public school, but... In Victoria, especially Melbourne's inner and middle ring suburbs, there are many choices. And now a former banker with two undergraduate degrees in biochemistry, genetics and applied ethics and a master's in applied finance is undertaking a PhD at RMIT on how and why parents choose secondary schools for their children. This person is called Sean Lever, who blogs at the Misbehaving Economist and is looking at the behavioural economics that underpin school choice and what impacts understanding this process could have on future education policy. 
It's a rather interesting study, I have to say. He says, it's particularly crucial in a country where parents are spending an extra $5.4 billion per year in private school fees, where socioeconomic sorting across public schools would lead to the same academic outcomes. Mm. So from an economic perspective, we, the people of Australia, are paying an extra $5.4 billion out of our pockets for no benefit because of this furphy of choice. His project, which is called Modelling the Hardest Decisions Parents Will Make, School Choice, has involved interviews and online surveys with about 800 families. Lever has delved into the complex issues behind school choice, and in economic terms, he says it's clear education is a unique investment choice, he says. Compared to other assets and purchases, many parents view investment in their children's education as not depreciating in value over time. He said parents also feel that, if anything, it's worth over-investing in child's education. That is, you can overcapitalize on your house renovation by throwing the same amount of money at your child's education and will never be wasted. But compared to buying marble bathroom tiles for the renovation, investment in a child's education has a less predictable outcome. Unless, as Jean said before, you happen to go to Scots College in Sydney and you can just spend the money and buy your way into a degree. Well, I don't know about that. It's... um <laughs> the problem is, of course, that you can have all the money in the world if, and you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And if the poor little darling hasn't got the goods in its, in its mind or it wants to do something else, if a child wants to do something else, then uh, parents have got a few problems, especially if they haven't spent the time with their children. Well, that is indeed the question. Lever says his interviewees clearly recognise the uncertainty of outcomes related to school choice, and that's part of the school gate agonising. They worry whether the school will bring out the best for their child. It will bring their child confidence. Will it be academically strong enough, but not too strong or pushy? And they also know there are no guarantees, as what you just said, Jen. But for those choosing private education, they worry they'll be able to They'll be worried. They'll be able to pay the fees until the end. Lieber says most of the benefits from attending a private school are associated with final years of schooling. But parents are, not surprisingly, concerned about the possibility of abrupt events, such as job loss or divorce. Many parents in Lieber's research took about a year to decide on their first child's secondary school, some even longer. School choice involves usually two parents who bring their own life histories and preferences to the search. Leavis's parents are heavily influenced by their own school experiences, either positively or negatively. Where their experience is positive, the way they were educated is repeated, often for generations. Negative school experiences, at a single-sex school, for instance, can lead to choices that exclude a particular school type from the selection process. But also the negative experiences of either parent can extend to decision-making processes for much longer than a year. He says decision-making styles where one parent has an analytical approach and has to wade through NAPLAN and my school results for each school considered produce levels of conflict when the other parent preferred to rely on what they would call their gut feel. Now, these interviews and surveys reveal the difficulty in choosing in a rapidly growing city amid an ever-changing educational landscape. One family researched a high-performing public school only to discover that because of its academic success, its popularity and, and size had soared, which made them concerned their child would be lost in the wash. 
They settled for a slightly lower-ranked school that was much smaller. The parents felt that the smaller school provided greater stability and a safer environment without reducing the child's opportunity to succeed. Some parents put academic ranking at the top of their selection criteria, but for many it was just one factor in their choice. Overall, parents were seeking the holy grail of a school that, and this is a quote, provided opportunities for their children to build the confidence and self-esteem. Schools that motivated and encouraged their children to learn and promoted positive attitudes, as well as strong VCE results. Now, many of Lever's interviewees revealed a pronounced wariness of the academically selective schools, fearful of rank order effects which occur when a child's academic rank within a school cohort impacts on the academic outcomes independent of overall ability. Or, as one parent explained her bright daughter's reluctance to go to a selective school, she said one of the reasons she didn't want to go to McRobb's Girls High School was that she said, at the moment I'm getting A's, I don't want to get, go to McRobb and get D's. <laughs> I knew it would affect her confidence. The interviews reveal some of the views underpinning family decisions to send their children to private schools. Building and programs weren't as sought after as quality among the students' peer group. Quality, interesting. Parents actively tried to avoid schools with students who were, inverted commas, disruptive, and believed private schools were better able to remove those students. And there we get to the nub of it. Perceived, and this is again in quotes, moral values were key. Yes. M O C D. You'll have to explain what that (laughs) means to the rest of our audience, Jane. Not our class, dear. Yes, the perceived moral values were key to some parents' decisions, but religious affiliation of the school was less important. Muslim and Hindu families sent their children to Catholic secondary schools, believing they had discipline and moral values. Well, <laughs> Lever's research is underway, but he's already aware he's got great potential for postdoctoral research, that long-term outcomes of those parents' choices for their children. You see, I think this is just information, Jim. I, I, I think this fellow is getting information. And I think the most important thing is what I said earlier, is that in Australia the parents spend an extra $5.4 billion per year in private school fees when socioeconomic sorting across public schools would lead to exactly the same academic outcomes. Well, yes, this whole school choice thing has a little interesting addendum because in Sydney on the North Shore, some very interesting things are happening in the primary school sector because primary schools in Sydney's North Shore are so overcrowded that the state government has now considered buying land, redeveloping it into residential blocks and putting the classrooms in the basement underneath them to cope with ballooning enrolments. This is because parents are choosing the state school system for all the reasons that have just been highlighted by that very interesting research. The schools on the North Shore are so full that many in Armington, Northbridge and Chatswood in Sydney are well above capacity. And at Willoughby Public School, there are more than 2,000 students on a site designed to accommodate 450. The enrolments at the primary school have grown 37% in just eight years. And this, and this year, there are 1,044 students um, at the school, more than there were so many years ago. Because parents are making choices, sensible choices, to send their child to their local public school. Because as Jean has quite rightly pointed out, and I will, your child is your child. If you spend the time on their education, the time on their education, then that's what matters more than anything else. 
Money and school choice is something separate indeed. But Jean's got some interesting things to talk about in the United States. I've got some very interesting material here from uh, America. And Mr Pine is trying to put the American tertiary system onto our next generation of children. And I think that parents who are now paying out for their renovation, for their mortgage, for their children's education and for the future uh, tertiary education should look at some of this. The total amount of student debt in America at the moment is at crisis proportions. It is $1.3 trillion. Now, that's debt not paid, um, and it's usually most of that debt has been incurred by people who are under the age of 40. Federally, and it's public debt, that's not all the private debt because in America, large numbers of students take out bank loans to put themselves through, quote, college. But this is the public debt. This is the money that they have taken out uh, and said they would pay back to the Federal Reserve. Because federally backed student loans have been available in America in one form or another since the 1950s. And this is what Mr Pine is now going to introduce into Australia. But the debt burden for $1.3 trillion, which hasn't been paid back, which is a black hole in the um, American economy, uh, is with the under-40s. Given the steep angle in their charts that is for the, um, the under-40s, uh, there is a great deal of concern. And there's a lot of delinquent uh, debts, delinquent loans, and in the problem is much greater for people under 40. Now, this is what the researchers say about this situation in America, and I think that we can uh, think about this here too. It's holding young people back from the consumer economy. 30-year-olds with no history of student debt saw their home ownership rates decline by 5 percentage points. And in recent years, student debt holders have also been less likely to obtain an auto loan, that's for a car, than other college-educated people in their age group. Excessive consumer debt's another economic problem, of course, but the figures are an indication that student debt is keeping young Americans from forming households purchasing homes, buying cars and presumably other types of purchases as well. So in large numbers, young people are prevented from fully participating in the marketplace. So if they aren't, if they aren't buying, then who's going to make profits out of them? Uh, if they're not able to buy things, that doesn't just harm them personally, it hurts the entire economy economy, which means that it affects almost everyone. And I think that some of the, um, some of the comments are rather fun. Well, Dale will read some of these to you. Thanks, Jean. I've got one from Anne Beaudry here who says, student debt is now indeed a crisis, unconscionable, as those of us who went to affordable state universities know well. We, not just young people, should be leading the charge to change this. Another one from Bob says, uh, besides the Great Recession, too many degrees do not target 
people towards jobs. As a country, we have a number of degreed people with no real hope of getting a job in their educated field. Nowhere else can one get a loan without worthwhile collateral. A degree in a field that doesn't employ is a sentence to debt. Students need career counselling before they take a degree, before they take a degree path that puts them in a problem like this. And Eugene says, the charts are staggering. However, you have failed to show the crushing debt that parents have shouldered to help educate the next generation of American citizen workers. And another one, for decades now, we have allowed the colleges and bankers to profit at the expense of the young. Whatever happened to the common good and empowering and educated citizenry? Let's fix the college cost problem along with the student debt. So whatever happened to the common good or the common will? And that was what we called Australia, a commonwealth from the common will. And that, of course, is why we're here every week, the dogs, because the common good matters to us and the good of the next generation. We should have an education system from birth to death, which is free, which is secular, which is universal and which is available for all. And it should be paid with public money. And our public money, our valuable taxes, should not be diverted for private, the private good and private profit. Now, this is for the common good. This is the basic underpinning of a democracy. These days, if you say these things, they call you all sorts of things. Um, but it is, in fact, the very basic democratic principles and we here at the dogs are first and foremost first and foremost democrats you can call us the democrats from hell if you like but uh, we are here every week to promote this very basic principle for our children and our children's children and i think that's about enough for us for this week so we're going to say bye for now and if you want to find out more about us look at www adogs.info I dreamed I saw Joe here last night alive as you and me says I but Joe here ten years dead I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe. Copper bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with. 
what they can never kill went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you'll find your Joe, you're ten years dead. 